0: I'm going to spend some time this morning going over a, a concept of Jesus being the Lamb of God, and recognize that um, it's not one of those terms that you're going to come to naturally, but it's going to be more of a, a scripture understanding as you uh, read the gospel together with others. And um, it's it's kind of like when we, when we go to describe God, this unseen God, this powerful God, but we try to put them in spatial terms because that's what we're used to dealing with, right? We talk about being filled with the Spirit, you know, like you would fill a, a glass with water. And you're going, that's a spatial term. It doesn't necessarily describe everything about God, but it does help us understand sometimes what's going on in our lives. Um. It's just like when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit and, and joy. It's one of those terms that can affect every facet of our lives, right? I mean, laughter's a part of joy, and, and there are times you can laugh until you cry. So there's even a, a physical manifestation that comes with joy. But there is an emotional attachment. There is an intellectual attachment. Uh, Satisfaction that allows joy to take place, you know there's the whole range of our being is affected by such a thing, and peace is another one of those or love, you know whatever you want to pick it's it's immense, but it's you know it affects every facet of our being. The types in scripture are such that oftentimes according to our culture, different types are more effective for us to use. You know, if you use Jesus as the bread of life, people can understand that they eat bread regularly, you know, and, and so there's an idea that's attached to that easily. If you go to say, you know, brother or sister, are, are you part of the circumcised in Christ? You know, they're going to be looking at you like, what is the matter with you? and should, um, but as, a, as an understanding of Scripture, there can be a beauty of saying my heart has been set aside or, or cleansed for God. Um, this Lamb of God is more than cotton balls on the refrigerator, uh, and it, yet most of us have never actually had contact with the Lamb. And even those of us that have aren 't necessarily tied to the idea of sacrificing one when I was a kid, we had lambs for a short time on the farm. I was probably six or seven i don 't remember them as cuddly. It may have had to do with me trying to ride them all the time, but it you know it cuddly was not the thing, and yet you know, we all have seen these pictures of Jesus holding a lamb or the shepherd holding a lamb, and, you know, it, it evokes a warm emotion. What I want to do is walk through Exodus 12 in regard to the Passover and what they were participating in sacrifice just to help drive this idea home in our hearts because it's it is fairly important as a New Testament concept, and even when you go and read the book of Revelation, that term is used 36 times, and so it's not something to just avoid, it's something better to understand, and in some ways, it's almost like what I call indoor knowledge. Once you've come to Christ, once you start reading the scripture, it's time to figure out what this is about, and yet there's a beauty attached to it that's wonderful once you grasp the imagery of it. Exodus 12, 1 and 2 says, sometime later, the Lord said to him, this is during the plagues that are coming on Egypt. And um, this is coming up to the last one. And it says, Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this month is to be the first month of the year for you. In other words, he's saying, time is going to be measured from this day forward. And in a sense, the Passover was representative of new life for these people. And so it's just like, even in your calendar, he says, this is where it starts. Now they were, uh, followed a lunar calendar, so they had the, you know, the, the new moon, but in the 10th day, it says, you're to, uh, you're to take a, each family must choose a lamb for his family to eat, one that doesn't have any blemishes, nothing wrong with it, large enough for everyone to have some of the meat. Do you understand that on Palm Sunday of what we worship, that was known as the Lamb Selection Day, when they would bring the lambs into Jerusalem and people would would purchase them? So there's an attachment that goes through history for years and years and years as they're celebrating Passover. And so when Jesus is going into Jerusalem, Lamb Selection Day is taking place, They would keep that lamp for four days to see if there was any blemishes or problems. And so when he's in the temple debating with the Pharisees, nothing's coming up to unravel or say, this this one is unworthy. So there's there's a power attached to this that once we catch it, it's like, this is beautiful. Say they must take care of it until the 14th day. And then it goes on to say, Some of the blood must be put on the two doorposts and above the door, each house where the animals are to be eaten. Now it's starting to get a little strange, right? They're going to kill this animal and they're going to take a branch of hyssop and they're going to put it on the door frame. That would be strange in this day, right? Uh, The Egyptians, I have the impression, thought the same thing. When, when Moses was talking to Pharaoh, he says, we've got to go out and have this festival in the desert. This is what this argument kind of started over. And at one point, he finally said, oh, just do your sacrifices here. And Moses makes a declaration. He says, that would be odious to your people. Remember when they, they went into Egypt, you know, he, t- uh, Joseph, or Jacob, excuse me, Joseph, get that name right, told his family, you need to declare yourselves this because shepherds are odious to the Egyptians, and it, that apparently that mindset had continued, but you know when when he's when Moses is debating pharaoh he's going, we can't do that here. they saw us making a sacrifice like they'd stone us so you know what's the benefit then of you know this blood covering, except that we're to understand that this was the protection point and the entry point. In other words, everybody going into the house walks under this umbrella. This is the entrance, and so to speak, into the household of God. This is like a starting point. And so the imagery that comes to us even now is that through Christ, through His sacrifice, that's my entry into the body of Christ into the body of believers the family of God the household of God you know so it's it's this 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 imagery and symbolism is something that was carried on the the recognition of it and the wonder of it for years they were taking a great chance to do this if it didn't work they were going to get some real trouble out of this. But it was that thing of saying, we believe this strongly enough, this is what we're going to do. And smearing that blood over the doorposts. It says, the night the animals are to be roasted and eaten together with bitter herbs and thin bread made without yeast. Uh, I'm not entirely certain of this bitter herbs picture, but for them it was in a sense symbolic of all the sorrows of life that they endured, but in some ways it even points toward the cross and the crucifixion of our Savior. You know, it's, it's not a, uh, when you think of somebody, a hero coming and, and conquering and setting you free, you don't necessarily think of them dying and being scourged and whipped and, and the beard plucked out. You know, that picture isn't generally a part of our thinking, and yet it's what we say and understand has happened to Christ. So the bitter herbs were a part of this meal from that time on, and even the unleavened bread. um, Before I go to that, the bitter. There is a verse out of Zechariah. It talks about the work of uh, a future work and a salvation. It says, when the spear is stuck in the side... There's it. They're going to weep bitterly, like one who weeps over a firstborn child. So there's an imagery in Zechariah, even pointing pointing toward the crucifixion. But in most translations, that term "bitter" comes across as that being part of things. So it is there is a foreshadowing of what's ahead. Um, the unleavened bread, you know, this again is is another thing that we point to as saying this is a a shedding of the old and a starting of the new. And every year they were to go through seven days of, of no leaven in the bread. And, and in this meal that they were preparing, they were told, don't put any yeast in the bread. And um, Paul picks up on that later on in, in Corinthians. And I'm ahead of myself, I knew this was going to happen. You'll wait a few minutes. We'll come back to that. Um, Let's just move on into 9 and 10. It says, don't eat of the raw or boiled, the entire animal, including its heads, legs, and insides must be roasted. Eat what you want that night, and the next morning burn whatever is left. And so in that, I guess, um, I'm looking at it and going, there is a completeness to what is being done, so much so that what's left is just ashes. And it was assumed that when Christ died, nothing was left of this body. Nothing was left that was it was going to be ashes. That was the assumption. Now we know he rose again. But again, there's a, a foreshadowing of what was and was to be. It wasn't just an ongoing meal. It was just this sacrifice is complete. And by itself, a standalone thing, so to speak. When you eat the meal, be dressed and ready to travel. Have your sandals on, carry your walking stick in your hand, eat quickly. In other words, you're stepping into something new. Your life is going to be entirely different. You're going to participate in this meal, and the next day on is going to be a new life and something that's never been done before or never been a part of you before you're stepping into a journey through this as you participate in it. Same night, I'll pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn son in every family, firstborn male, all the lambs. I'm the Lord, and I will punish the gods of Egypt. Now, in times past, I've I've read that all the gods in Egypt corresponded with the different plagues. I'm not absolutely certain of that. I'm not enough of a scholar to know for sure. I do know that the first plague with the blood It struck the Nile, which was the the basis and the center of their civilization. They'd grown wealthy as a nation over the floodplains and the the crops that they could grow there. It had been the place where they had developed as a people. And so the Nile was crucial to their identity. And when the blood is on the Nile and makes it worthless to them, there's this awareness that even what's been essential to our development is not a given. It isn't as as protected as we thought it would be. It's interesting to me that the the plague before this Passover was three days of darkness. And I know that the Egyptians were known for their sun god, Ray. You know, so three days of darkness is saying your sun means nothing. Then they enter into this Passover. The blood on the houses will show where you live, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Then you won't be bothered by the terrible disasters. I'll bring Egypt, remember this day, and celebrate it each year as a festival in my honor. So he's telling them from this day forward, every year you're to celebrate this. So when Jesus is going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and he's slain at the Passover time, This is not an accident, but this has been 1,400 years of development. Incredible. You know, that that God would see ahead into history that far and be able to make this happen. So seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. And so they go on. Here's that Corinthians passage I was going to refer to. Get rid of the old yeast, and you'll be like fresh bread made without it. Says, don't celebrate the festival by being evil and sinful. Be pure and truthful and celebrate by using bread made without yeast. And so he's saying, when you come into this new life in Christ and you're eating this unleavened bread, so to speak, become truthful people. Put off falsehood. Put off anything that's profane and, and, and would you know taint your life. <laughs> He says, in other words, when you come to Christ and you accept this sacrifice, you accept his protection, get rid of the filth. And so that picture's there, even from the beginning. It says, after you'd entered the country, promised to the Lord, you and your children must continue to celebrate. Okay. It says, at midnight, the Lord killed the firstborn son, every Egyptian family from the son of the king of the... Uh, son of the king, and every prisoner in jail. He also killed the firstborn male, every animal that belonged to the Egyptians. And so there is this horrible, horrible thing that takes place in the land. But there's an awareness that God has power over all things. And and in striking the firstborn, he he is striking what they would have considered the sign of strength in their families, They would have been their future. He was just striking and saying, you don't have any right to dream except through me. You don't have any right to proclaim this is who we will be except through me. God was just saying, no, I have power over all of this. Says the Lord made the Egyptians friendly toward the people of Israel, and gave them whatever they asked for, and they carried away wealth. They left Egypt exactly four hundred and thirty years after they had arrived. What's powerful in this is that Abraham had been told hundreds of years previous, "Your people are going to be in that land four hundred years. Then they're going to come out with great plunder. They're going to suffer as slaves." So already there was the setup for this time through the prophet Abraham before Isaac is born. So remember, he's, you know, he gets the promise, and he's 75, and then he's 85, you know, he's, then he's 100. He's, he's walking through these things, and it, it's past the age of belief that this could even happen, and he's got to cling to this by faith. And God is working with them and making this covenant. And at one point he says, okay, you're going to have kids, and at some point they're going to go off into a foreign land and they're going to suffer like slaves. Well, that's the last thing you want to hear about your future generations. But he says, in the end, they're going to come out as a great people and they're going to come out with great plunder. So the promise was made and it's fulfilled in that moment. So the Israelites, you know, they're looking back and they're celebrating this. For 1,400 years, they're remembering, this is the day we became a nation. This is the day we were were rescued by God. This is the day we were brought out of slavery. And so we've looked at that imagery as well and say, when we come to new life in Christ, He sets us free from old patterns and old sins and old habits. And He allows us to walk in a newness of life with Him. His blood is that covering that allows us to enter into this. Is the blood something that makes sense in ordinary life or in ordinary imagery? No. But once you understand it from the Scripture, there's a beauty to this thing. and You say, that's powerful. It's amazing. He says, on the night the Lord kept watch over them, and on the same night each year, Israel will always keep watch In honor of the Lord, so part of their Passover celebration also then was this night watch, so to speak. Doesn't that sound familiar? When he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you won't enter him to temptation. He's hearkening onto a pattern that's been on for all these years, and now he's putting it out before them and saying. This is being fulfilled right in this moment. God's deliverance is at hand. Powerful. 46th verse of Exodus 12. The entire meal must be eaten inside. No one may leave the house during the celebration. No bones of the Passover lamb may be broken. Now normally, they would have been breaking the bones and eating the marrow. That was done for a lot of generations. I, I realize it's not common now. But for them, normally, that would have been, but he's saying, in this case, don't. And, and we look at Christ crucified. Remember how they went, they were going to break the bones so he'd die quicker and realized he was already dead? There, there's a beauty to all of this. That's powerful. 47:48, the Israelites must take part of the meal. Anyone who isn't an Israelite wants to celebrate, must first be circumcised, then they may join the meal just like the native Israelites. So in this particular festival, there's an opening of the door to the Gentiles, to all, so to speak, everyone that would want to participate. And again, the imagery is that Christ's sacrifice is going to be for all people. Let's go to the New Testament. John 1.29. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is recognizing Jesus in this imagery and saying, okay, I get it. He has this insight and says, the Lamb of God. This this is the one. This is the perfect sacrifice. First Peter says, You were rescued by the precious blood of Christ, that spotless and innocent Lamb. Christ was chosen even before the world was created, but because of you he did not come until these last days. So Peter understands this imagery as well. I'd like to read um, as a last passage a, a portion of Revelation 5. In this particular passage, it's a heavenly scene, and the Apostle John is, is viewing it, and he's, he's about to weep, and, and there's a sorrow because nobody is worthy to open a particular scroll, and these scrolls are going to be opened later, and it's going to describe the future and such. So there's, a, there's a, a knowledge that there is something in those scrolls that we need to know but nobody has the right to step forward and to open these. Nobody has the authority or, or the, it has the, um, the bearing or the position or the, the identity that has the, the right to step in and, and do this. So that's the scene that's been given. One of the elders said to me, stop crying and look. The one who is called the lion from the tribe of Judah, David's great descendant, has won the victory, and he will open the book in its seven seals. And I looked, and I saw a lamb standing at the center of the throne that was once surrounded by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb looked as if it had once been killed. It's seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. So this is a, a scene that goes beyond our understanding, right? And there's imagery attached to all of it. But at very minimum, we say, There is a picture of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who is slain for us, standing there, and he's about to take the scroll. The Lamb went over and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. In other words, he's the only one that has the authority or the right to pick this up. He had taken it, and the four living creatures and four and twenty elders knelt down before him. Each of them had a harp and a gold bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to receive the scroll, open its seals, because you were killed in your own blood. You bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. You let them become kings and serve God as priests, and they will rule on the earth. So he says, what you've done gives you the right to do this. Your sacrifice has opened the door for multitudes. So as I looked, I heard the voices of a lot of angels around the throne and voices of the living creatures and the elders. There were millions and millions of them, and they were saying in a loud voice, the lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power and riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, glory and praise. So that's a picture of heaven and it's saying that Jesus has a a right that exceeds all others because of the sacrifice that he he paid. He was God's son, sacrificed for us. The imagery of this thing and the timing of it is so amazing to me. You know, that Abraham would be told, your people are going to go, they're going to be set free. Then as the plays come across, this final one, where they, they, Israel is protected by sacrificing a lamb and painting this blood on the doorposts and entering into the household, staying there in this time. This protection that's given. And so for 1,400 years, they're celebrating this and saying this is the birth of our nation. This is, you know, this is how it all started. And then Jesus marching in to Jerusalem, the day of selection. And him on that 14th day being crucified. And that knowledge and awareness that only God could have done this. Only God could have orchestrated history this way. Only God could bring our salvation. And so when you and I come together and we're looking through the scripture, and we're reading these passages, when we come to terms with them and understand them, then there's a wonder that comes into our lives and says, this really is true, and it's available for me. My sins can be washed away. Do I understand all of it? No. The imagery of it, do I, do I get why that was the path and the pattern? No, not really. I just see the beauty of it, and I get to celebrate it. And I get to enjoy that I can participate. And beyond that, even in this moment, the promised Holy Spirit is active in our lives through this sacrifice. Because what Christ has done is gone back and said, I am sending for you a comforter. I'm sending the one who will lead you into all truth. He's the one that reveals this to us even as we read it. He's the one that opens our eyes and lets us see and say, wow, how amazing, how wondrous that all of this is tied together. How wondrous that I have this expectation of a new promised land. That it, I may be, in a sense, walking through the desert even now, set free from Egypt, my sin's gone, But I know that this isn't the completion. I know that there's more. And Just as they celebrated that, they had this promise set before them, and we have that promise as well. Lord, help us to honor you with our lives, to celebrate your sacrifice, to enjoy the Lamb of God. Stand with me, will you? Lord, if there's one here today that is wrestling with the forgiveness of sins, I would ask that you would help them to see that you have done all that is necessary. It's just that they, have, they need to embrace the sacrifice, participate in your household, wash away our sins, help us to be a people of, of new faith, unleavened, so to speak. May the profanities of our life be taken from us. May we enjoy and celebrate the history that is ours and will be ours. We look forward to your return and triumphant exultation. You are worthy of all praise. glad he chose that song. There were years when I really didn't want to sing that because I was talking to people that didn't know. That's not a song that I necessarily would sing to an unbeliever. But once you understand it, what an incredible privilege to sing that and to trust the Lord that I'm set free because of what you've done. Let's sing it again.
1: as no other I know, nothing but the of Jesus
0: May your blessing rest on these your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy the Completeness of your salvation, and wonder in the power that you exert over history. I ask as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I pray that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. I ask that you'll gift them with the supernatural. Be exalted and lifted up, we pray. We love you this day. Amen.